From Northern California Public Media, welcome to Living Downstream, the environmental justice podcast. I'm your host, Steve Mencher. This time, fire and rain. First they lost their forests, then they lost their farms. Lots of us have disaster nightmares that go something like this. You're speeding down a mountain road, and it's dark, and the pavement is slick. A guardrail appears ahead, you pump the brakes, but the car fishtails and skids. The nightmare accelerates. Everything you do to avoid disaster makes things worse. This kind of vicious circle happens in real life, too. We make a mistake, and then whatever we do to fix it only makes things worse. That's what occurred in our story today. It takes place in the South Pacific. Borneo, a Texas-sized island, is divided among several countries. Kalimantan is the Indonesian portion of the island, comprising about three-quarters of it. 24 years ago, loggers holding government concessions began cutting down a jungle on the swampy southern fringe of Kalimantan, supposedly to make room for rice paddies for feeding the populous country. Nobody predicted the chain of disastrous events that happened next. The huge development project robbed indigenous people of their land and livelihood. It turned tracts of rare jungle habitat into vast plantations of oil, palm, and acacia trees. And then it set in motion an environmental catastrophe of global dimensions. Indonesia is still trying to set things right. And some of the solutions are making life even worse for the rural farmers and fishermen of southern Kalimantan. Daniel Grossman went to the Indonesian island and brought back this report. I'm roaming a rainforest, hoping to glimpse some of Kalimantan's famous wildlife. Hidden somewhere behind dinner plate-sized leaves, there could be a proboscis or leaf monkey, a clouded leopard, an anteater, or any of the hundreds of bird species that fly and hop through these woods. My guide Maynar Nusawalo says a little while ago he spotted Indonesia's most charismatic animal, an orangutan, on this path. We're suspended a few inches above a bog on a boardwalk made of rickety planks. I have to practically sprint to keep up with Maynar's pace, but if I'm not careful, I'll trip and land in the quagmire. Maynard slows and raises a finger to his lips. What's that? An orangutan, a male, a ruddy, pot-bellied Buddha swaying from a treetop. A rich, dense rainforest like the one I'm walking through once cloaked all of Kalimantan from coastal plains to mountainous interior. But in the last several decades, more than half of the island has been cleared and its wildlife decimated. High-value trees such as teak and ebony have been harvested and turned into furniture and veneers. Absentee investors have installed plantations of oil palm and acacia, a source of paper pulp. Marshy lowland rainforests near Kalimantan's seashore have suffered the most. This jungle patch, 
A swath about the size of the city of Los Angeles is among the few that remain. I could describe my own impressions of these rare forests, but Norhadi, a farmer, does a better job. He grew up in such a forest. It was clear-cut when he was a teenager. Like many Indonesians, he goes by only one name. The Mantangai River was very wide. Three branches from one side touched the ones on the other side and were intertwined. The trees were so big that you needed more than one person to hug them. Many animals lived there. There were so many animals and birds living in this area that we couldn't even hear ourselves speak. We'll meet Norhadi again later. He'll tell us what cutting down the forest meant for him and Mantangai, the village where he lives, and how recovering from the disaster that followed is shattering the community's lifestyle. First, in case you're wondering, this story is probably different from the deforestation tales you've heard before. The lowland jungle I'm going to talk about in Kalimantan is special. It's a peatland forest where trees' roots are perpetually waterlogged and where undecayed forest litter collects in deep deposits. The fate it suffered is one of the world's great environmental tragedies. The consequences reverberate today, two decades later. To understand what happened and how Indonesia is trying to cope, I flew to Indonesia's congested capital, Jakarta. When I arrive, Indonesia's majority Muslim population is observing the holy month of Ramadan. The call to prayer blares from loudspeakers, announcing prayer and fasting times. For 30 years, between 1968 and 1998, the dictator Suharto ruled Indonesia with a heavy hand. In 1995, Suharto commanded that a swath of peatland forest about the size of Connecticut in lowland Kalimantan be converted into a mammoth rice plantation. The mega rice project, of course, starts because we were facing, uh, let's say, a problem of our rice efficiency. So the government want to have larger rice field. This is Nazir Fuad. His voice had to compete with Jakarta's ubiquitous din of AC units and street traffic. He worked for the conservation group World Wildlife Fund when the forest was cut. He's describing the official explanation for the mega rice project. Indonesians eat rice at every meal, a pound a day. Suharto wanted the country to grow more of it. But Marcel Silvius says there were also ulterior motives. Silvius is the Indonesian representative of the Global Green Growth Institute. He's worked in Indonesia for three decades. And I think uh, largely also it was being developed because these were huge forest resources. And developing this large, more than one million hectare scheme helped certain people to gain access to these uh, timber resources in those areas. And so in the end it was more a deforestation or forestry project rather than a, than a rice project. For millennia, Kalimantan's indigenous Dayak people had hunted and collected nuts, rubber, and other forest products in the soggy jungle cut down for the mega rice project. Few others had even given much thought to these coastal forests, not even lumber companies. It was hard to even walk there, 
let alone operate heavy equipment. But loggers were running out of timber in upland forests farther inland, where the soil is firmer. Beginning in 1995, Woodsman leveled a tract 70 miles long and 40 miles wide. Then crews excavated 3,000 miles of canals, an act they couldn't have guessed would soon bring about a catastrophe. Yeah, this way. I'm back in Kalimantan, and this is a good time to say that the mega rice project completely failed. It never grew any rice. Huh, you can see the water level? I asked Tampung Saman why. Saman works at the Center for International Cooperation and Sustainable Management of Tropical Peatland at the University of Palunkaraya. Palunkaraya is the city nearest the Mega Rice Project. Saman took me to one of the project's canals, the width of a country road. After years of neglect, its shores are overgrown and uneven. So this, are, this pit, this pit is, is the material, you see? It's the material. Uh, Saman scoops up a tawny clod of peat and breaks it up with his fingers. Peat deposits form where continuous immersion in water keeps dead roots, twigs, and other forest litter from rotting. Undecayed detritus accumulates in layer upon layer, sometimes for thousands of years. The peat here, often as soft as cold oatmeal, can reach 60 feet thick. Saman says that native forest plants such as rattan vines and natural rubber grow well on peat, but introduced plants do poorly. The, the, the rice cannot grow because uh, no nutrient. There are almost no nutrients in peat. Worse yet, it's highly acidic, making it toxic for most crops. Rice can't grow unless the peat's rinsed of acid and fortified with expensive fertilizer. Indigenous Dayaks have known since time began that peat is infertile. They make their farms and villages close by the muddy rivers that snake through the coastal plains. There, frequent floods rinse away acids and deposit mineral sediments full of nutrients. The Mega Rice Project's designers also knew that untreated peat can't grow rice. So they dredged a huge arterial network of canals meant to usher nutrient-rich river water deep into the peatlands. But they made an astounding miscalculation, says Alu Dohong. We realized that that's going to create a, a disaster. Outside experts at Palunkaraya University predicted that the canals would not help crops to grow in the peat. Dohong works at Indonesia's Peatland Restoration Agency, a government unit set up in 2016 to undo the damage. Palangkaraya University, where I was, uh, I did Palangkaraya University, where I did my undergrad, was against this project. But who would dare challenge Suharto? No one dared to challenge the strong government at that time. It seems that the project's planners overlooked the land's convex contours. To the naked eye, peatlands are flat, but they're not. They rise ever so slightly in the space between Kalimantan's lowland rivers in pillow-shaped formations called peat domes. The river water is lower than the domes, so it couldn't flow into the canals and irrigate the peat. Just as experts had warned, the canals drained the soggy peat rather than propelling rich, silty water into it. The peat domes dried up like a sponge left on a kitchen counter.
the lifespan of the project was short. We met Nazir Fuad a few minutes ago. He's now head of the Peatland Restoration Agency, where Alu Dohong also works. It's only a couple of years, and the government realized it was a uh, wrong decision, so it was stopped. But damage has been done. The government realized that their plans were wrong and called off the project. But the damage was done. That was 20 years ago. I'd heard that the jungle and people who live in and around it still had not recovered all these years later. I drove into the failed scheme's territory to see what had happened. At sunset, I arrive at Muntangai, population 2000, where the Muntangai River empties into the wide, muddy Kapuas. The street is alive with kids playing games and setting off fireworks. Inside a gabled wood frame house the size of a two-car garage, Norhadi, the Montangai native we met a few minutes ago, unrolls a scroll of poster paper, kneels down, and lays it flat on the floor. Like most Montangai residents, Norhadi is a descendant of Dayak forest dwellers. He's also a local representative of Walhi, an affiliate of the International Friends of the Earth organization. He drags a calloused finger across his dog-eared document. It's a rustic map. In contrasting pastel hues, it shows the locations and uses of Muntangai's ancestral lands before the Mega Rice Project. It looks like a jigsaw puzzle, each piece a different color. He says that for generations, people have grown rice and vegetables in the teal areas right along the Kapuas River. Orange areas, peat domes useless for agriculture, were left for hunting and gathering tree products. Suharto's orders leveled this forest. Norhadi thumps a brown rectangular block as big as his palm, representing a Manhattan-sized plot. When the Mega Rice Project came, all of the community rubber plantation was cut down and cleared. We weren't able to cultivate our land because the project was building the canals. Did the government uh, pay for for the forest that they took away, or did they ask permission? No. At that time, no one dared to oppose the project because of the presence of the National Army that was guarding the contractors. Few people outside of Indonesia would ever have heard of Kalimantan's ravaged forest had it simply been the victim of a dictator's cruel, failed dream. But something unexpected happened, multiplying the suffering in Muntangai and other towns, bringing the blunder to worldwide attention. Again, Tampung Saman, who earlier showed me the handful of peat. Right after the um, peatland opened and the dry season also coming and the area getting dry, the fires also starting. Fires started in August 1997.
This is All Things Considered. I'm Robert Siegel. And I'm Leanne Hansen. In Southeast Asia, air pollution is at dangerous levels and threatens millions of people. It's caused by out-of-control fires. On In 1997, world weather conditions settled into an El Nino pattern. El Ninos occur when equatorial Pacific Ocean waters warm up, influencing weather all over the Earth. In Kalimantan, El Ninos cause drought. What you have is organic carbon that's been wet for tens of thousands of years, and then for the first time, the water is drained from it. And because it was such a dry year, the, the top one meter, if not one and a half meters of carbon, was now um, very, very dry, very easily ignitable. Laura Graham is an ecologist at the Borneo Orangutan Survival Foundation, headquartered in Palunkaraya. She says it only took a few sparks to set off a conflagration that burned half the former Mega Rice Project's parched peatlands, an area larger than Rhode Island. If you looked at the island of Borneo from a satellite, you could no longer see the island. All you could see was an expanse of smoke. You know, it looked like a cloud covering the island. Apart from it wasn't a cloud, it was smoke, because there was so much uh, uh, carbon being released into the atmosphere. Norhadi, the farmer, recalls the fires vividly. Wow, the fires were amazing. They reached up to top of trees. They were burning bright to tens of meters in the forest. Clouds hid the sun for more than a month. Fires spread into uncut forest never burned before decimating even wildlife not already evicted by logging. The animals were screaming day and night. All these animals were burned alive or died of starvation. I will always remember how three of my friends and I found an orangutan. I said, whenever we find an orangutan that is screaming in pain, it is best just to kill it. Combined with burning that year on cleared peatlands elsewhere in Indonesia, it was one of the worst wildfires in history. Smoke drifted hundreds of miles across Indonesia to Singapore, Malaysia, and Vietnam, exposing tens of millions of people to sooty air. A study published in the journal Nature Climate Change estimates that smoke inhalation killed at least 10,000 people. The entire planet suffered from the fire's flames. Globally, from the point of view of uh, uh, carbon emissions and greenhouse gas emissions, it, um, it was devastating from that perspective as well. Peat is densely packed with carbon, much more than the trees that grow on it. The blazes let off about as much CO2 as the United States that year, temporarily making Indonesia one of the worst climate change polluters. Twice the average amount of CO2 accumulated in the atmosphere that season due partly to the fires. Tampung Saman took me up a steel tower by a road in the heart of the failed mega rice project. This uh, tower for uh, monitoring the forest fire. You can see uh, uh, many kilometers from here. We can we can we can see if there is any fire starting. 
For more than a decade, the Indonesian government did little to restore the forest or to prevent more fires. And from an observation deck three stories up, it's clear that the land's wounds never healed. Orangutans once chewed leaves and treetop layers here. Now a sun-bleached shrubland stretches to the horizon in every direction. The only reminders of the former forest are charred trunks pitched sideways like toppled tombstones in an abandoned cemetery. Peat fires, once rare, now flare up every year, sometimes smoldering for months underground. The worst fires burn in years of strong El Ninos, such as 2015. Did it look like fire, or was there flames, or was it just smoke coming out of the ground? At the beginning, fire, and later we just see smoke. We don't see any fire, but the smoke everywhere, covering all the area. We cannot see trees, we cannot see anything. And difficult to breathe, and there are many uh, victims as well because of the pit smoke. Uh, they call it, uh, what do you call it, toxic. By 2015, Indonesia had cut down even more peat forest, mostly for oil palm and acacia plantations. A paper in the journal Environmental Research Letters calculated that 100,000 people died prematurely from that fire's smoke. Indonesia's president, Joko Widodo, had assumed office shortly before the 2015 blazes. His first act of 2016 ordered that Indonesia's decimated peatlands be repaired. He created the Peatland Restoration Agency and named Nazir Fuad to head it. The main task is to restore off those drain peatland, disturb peatland. So, number one, we will minimize the fire hazard. Number two, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions uh, from Indonesia. Minimize fire hazard and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Laudable ambitions. But as with Suharto's order commanding a rice plantation, Widodo's goal is proving difficult, says Fuad's deputy, Alu Dohong. We can't, to make it we can't bring it back to pristine condition because it's a long-term process. Peatlands are developed through an interaction of three major elements, hydrology, water, peat itself, and vegetation on top of it. Once one is eliminated, it's very difficult to restore to its original condition. It's one thing to saw trees down and dig canals, and another to bring the forest back. And as Muntungai's farmers have discovered, the cure prescribed by the government has serious side effects for them. Saman says the plan for restoring peatland forest begins with filling in or blocking the canals now draining the peatlands. It's called rewetting. Rewetting by, by uh, canal blocking, the, the water is uh, retained and it's getting wet. You see? The, the area is getting wet, the, uh, full of water. That's, that is the idea to prevent the fire. When the, when the water level is high enough, fire never comes. That is the importance of canal blocking. Waterlogged peatlands rarely burn, especially when covered with native trees that keep Indonesia's scorching sun off the soil. But they're also too soggy for the oil palm and acacia plantations that now grow on large tracts of peatland. To accommodate these commercial forests, Government re-wetting programs leave the peatland too dry to be fireproof.
So peatland protection must also restrict ignition sources that might kindle a blaze. The government uh, put the regulation into effect saying that the people are not allowed to burn. Plantation operators like to clear land and remove unwanted vegetation with fire. Indonesia banned the practice in 2014, but the rule exempted indigenous and other family farmers such as Norhadi. For generations, Dayak farmers have prepared plots for the next season's crops with fire, the labor-saving method called slash and burn. The practice gets rid of leftover stubble and produces fertilizing ash. But after the catastrophic fires of 2015, the Indonesian government ended the slash-and-burn exemption, banning a critical farming tool. Now they are banned. They cannot do anything. So more um, traditional farmers are changing now, changing to other uh, type of livelihood. Not rice farming anymore. According to Narhadi, 90% of the families in Muntungai gave up farming after the new fire ban went into effect. He hasn't, though. He's taking me to his farm across the Kapuas River. A stiff wind blows spray onto his boat's worn black hull. We turn up a creek barely wider than the vessel and tie up at a dock perched on spindly sticks. Narhadi wants to show me his fruit trees, mango, banana, and coffee, and his fish pond. But first, he beckons me into his farm cabin. He opens the wooden shutters, tidies up a bit, and lights a small fire at a rustic stone hearth. He fills a blackened kettle and sets it above the flames. It's time for some tea. Incidentally, the high-pitched chirping is not real birds. It's a sound system. It attracts swiftlets, birds that build edible nests with their saliva. Lots of people here cultivate swiftlets. Nurhadi says that he makes good money selling the nests for export to China. Nurhadi motions toward a rice paddy enclosed by knee-high berms. He'll flood it with river water and seed it soon. Yang kita lakukan pertama itu adalah Nurhadi used to practice slash and burn. Now he chops stubble into pieces and plows them into the soil. It's more work, but so far the results have been good. The no-burning policy is having a positive impact on our life, especially for vegetable plots. We can grow crops sustainably. The land is giving good results, helping to increase our family's income without fire. The rice harvest is down, but he's happy that his lungs don't fill up with smoke like before. One hundred miles to the east, 67-year-old Yai Min hasn't been able to grow rice at all since the slash and burn ban. The leaves are burned. See, this leaf hopper. Plenty of the paddies couldn't grow. Standing barefoot in ankle-deep water, 
Yai Min yanks up a fistful of withered fronds. They're brown, as if scorched, and won't produce rice, he says. Leafhopper insects infested the paddy. He's lost the two crops he planted since the burning ban. He says that without fire, insect eggs linger in the soil between seasons. Rice farming might now be impossible. The regulation strictly prohibits burning. If we violate the ban, we'll definitely be sanctioned. Ya'i Min's neighbors have already given up farming. Now most are hired hands at plantations. Experts I consulted say Norhadi's luck farming without fire might be a fluke that could melt away when his land becomes exhausted. Ya'i Min's situation is more common, they say. Some experts call the slash-and-burn ban misguided. Indigenous and family farmers aren't the major cause of peatland fires, they say. Small farmers' plots, by rivers, are distant from the peat domes where wildfires are of most concern. Also, these farmers know how to prevent the slash-and-burn fires from getting out of control. Regardless of the possible benefits, Tampung Saman says the price of the slash-and-burn ban is steep in indigenous communities such as Mantangai. So we don't know what happened next. The local people cannot do traditional farming because of that uh, fire ban. And we don't know what, what, what kind of livelihood they have now. Farmers are laying down their seed bags and picking up chainsaws instead, says Norhadi. They're harvesting timber and protected reserves and sifting river silt for gold. But these activities are illegal, putting people at risk of punishment, and suitable timber is getting scarce. Norhadi remains upbeat about his own farm, but he's bitter about the 20-year downward spiral he's experienced since the mega rice project unleashed calamity after calamity upon the forest of his ancestors and of his own youth. The mega rice project is the source of our suffering and misery not only for my generation, but also for those of my children and grandchildren. My grandchildren will never be able to enjoy or see the beauty and abundance that I once enjoyed and witnessed, how nature provided for each generation. As to preventing a repeat of the disastrous fires of the past, researchers say they won't know if canal blocking and fire control are successful until the next El Nino. Forecasters at the World Meteorological Organization say they expect weak El Nino conditions to appear sometime in 2019. For Living Downstream, I'm Daniel Grossman. Recently, the New York Times reported on the same region of Indonesia. Palm oil was the culprit this time, with a scheme to greatly increase the output of oil boomeranging to cause a climate disaster. In the words of writer Abram Lustgarten, this miscalculation lit the fuse on a powerful carbon bomb. We'll link to that story on our website. This episode of Living Downstream, Fire and Rain, was reported, produced, and mixed by Dan Grossman. Story editor was Claire Schoen, Thanks to Anthony Garcia for engineering help. This report was funded by the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting, the Whole Systems Foundation, the Frank B. Mazur Foundation, and Abby Rockefeller and Lee Halperin. Thanks to Borneo Productions International for archival sound. 
archival newscast courtesy of NPR's All Things Considered, as originally broadcast on September 25, 1997. Music by David Jowell, Sound Phenomenon, and Soda Belly from Pond5.com. Thanks to Harry Serhati for guiding and logistics in Indonesia, and for translations by Fidelis Sastriastanti and Chitra Angraini. The Living Downstream theme music is by David Schulman. I'm your host and senior producer, Steve Mencher. Darren Lachelle is the executive producer. And the president and CEO of Northern California Public Media is Nancy Dobbs. Subscribe to Living Downstream wherever you get your podcasts. Visit our website at norcalpublicmedia.org living. And if you see environmental injustice in your community, write to us at living at norcalpublicmedia.org. Living Downstream thanks our sponsors who make this podcast possible. A list is available at norcalpublicmedia.org.